I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part 71 in the series, The Gospel of Matthew. Some of the last things Jesus has to say in his teaching career are about a concept called final judgment. Judgment can be a scary concept, but it's also the hope humanity almost universally craves that wrong things will be made right, but it also means evil will be destroyed. And that's good, but scary. For a few centuries, this is a true story, for a few centuries, no one really drew the devil. In the Bible, the devil is a spiritual being, meaning he can express himself physically, we think, and he can, he can definitely interact with and affect matter in the physical world, but he is not primarily a physical being. So no one says what he looks like in the Bible. It doesn't really look like anything in the strict sense, I guess. And yet, on command, all of your brains reproduce an image of this creature that the Bible calls the devil. Watch, I'll show you. Imagine Satan. What comes to mind uh, for most of you, I'm assuming, is like a cartoon imp in red pajamas. Or probably this guy, uh, which is Baphomet, or Baphomet, if you want to get technical with the pronunciation. It's actually not the devil. It's a deity that the Knights Templar were accused of worshiping in 1307. Weird story. The image of Baphomet comes from a 19th century illustration, which was then used as inspiration for the devil image on the most popular deck of tarot cards in 1910. And that's how that crossover happened. But the jump from weird goat god to the devil actually kind of makes a lot of sense. No one drew the devil for a few hundred years. We think the earliest depiction of Satan at all is from the 6th century. He cameos in a mosaic found in a basilica within Ravenna, Italy. Here, he's standing on Jesus' right over three goats, contrasting the angel on Jesus' left and its three sheep. So 600 some odd years, no one drew Satan. He shows up in a mosaic. And then in the Middle Ages, Satan became a goat. Horns, hooves, a tail, a whole thing. No one thought to draw the guy for centuries, and then suddenly no one could stop drawing him. He's depicted as a man-eating monster, or as a goblin with a face for a butt. True story, the original butt face, Satan. <laughs> but more often, he's a goat, like here in Goya's Witch's Sabbath, which is also called the great he-goat. Uh, most of the time, he's still a goat in popular culture, whether it's Robert Eggers' 2015 film, The Witch, or Netflix reboot of Sabrina the Teenage Witch, Satan is a goat. And the devil goat imagery is a mainstay of our collective impression of the being called the Satan. And while it's true that there's all sorts of wild misunderstandings about the devil and hell and they permeate popular culture, the goat thing actually originated from the words of Jesus. Turn to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 25. If you have your Bibles, if not, use the app. That's totally fine. Matthew chapter 25. Lots of work to do with a little bit of time that we have, just a few of us. So let's get right to it. The conclusion of Matthew chapter 25 is also the conclusion of Jesus' teaching ministry in Matthew. And things only get crazier from here to the end of the book. So we have to talk about sheep, goats, judgment, redemption, and hell. You guys ready to do a little bit of work? Thank yeah. you, my friend. Yeah. Oh, wow. Even after the whole thing with Tab? That's a lot of encouragement. Thank you. Everyone wants judgment. 
The thing is, we tend to reduce judgment to the concept of punishing evil only. And that is one aspect of judgment, but it's about much, much more than that. Judgment is about wrong things being made right. It's about an end to injustice. And everyone wants that. It's what makes the world react when we witness injustice, when we read news about horrifying child abuse or human trafficking, or just recently when we're exposed to abject poverty in the news or when we see the footage of George Floyd's murder, even if we try to silence that or suppress that, God has wired humanity to experience an acute pang when exposed to evil and injustice. Something in us screams, this isn't right. Something in us longs for justice to be done. But we're so broken and the world itself is so broken that out of that God-given craving for justice, humanity often creates more evil, more suffering, and more injustice. That's the myth of redemptive violence. That's an eye for an eye. It's warfare and police brutality and military violence and crimes of passion, riots, mob justice, chaos. But if you squint into that chaos, you can often see the broken and misshapen hunger for justice. It's warped and it's corrupted, but it's there somewhere. Everyone wants judgment. Everyone wants judgment because judgment is actually good news. It means redemption and healing and justice. But we don't like the word judgment because it also reminds us of punishment or the eradication of evil. Evil that we know is also in us. But somewhere within us, everyone wants judgment. And Matthew finds this point so important that of the four biographies of Jesus' life and ministry, only Matthew concludes Jesus' teaching career with this stark scene of final judgment. And it begins this way, Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 31. Matthew 25, 31, Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. So in the scene, in the beginning anyway, Jesus, who often refers to himself as the Son of Man, it's one of his favorite names for himself, he has gone from this obscure, uh, divisive, controversial peasant rabbi to the greatest manifestation of power and glory the world has ever known. Jesus describes this future version of himself as coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. The angels are all there, all of heaven and earth are gathered in front of him. Absolutely astonishing spectacle. For those who love and follow Jesus, this is a heck yes moment. When Jesus is revealed in full glory, it can only mean good things. It's kind of a triumphant type of thing. He goes on, verse 32. All the nations will be gathered before him. Everyone's there. He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Now, unlike the previous teaching moments in Matthew 24 and 25, you can think back that far, this final scene is not a parable. It is what one scholar describes as, quote, a highly stylized and summary depiction of a real future event. So there's obviously a metaphor. You got the whole sheep and goats thing, but it's not an entirely fictitious anecdote that symbolizes something else like a parable, as was the case with the story about the bridesmaids from last week and the bags of gold. The sheep and the goats, they make up the intro, but then the symbolism is abandoned for a more realistic scene. 
And in this real thing that's going to happen in the future sometime, all nations are gathered before Jesus. One scholar I read called it, quote, the most significant mass meeting of all time. Remember mass meetings. So we're there, meaning us, disciples of Jesus. Remember, after all, these last few parables and teachings have been directed at Jesus' disciples. That's who he's talking to. Teaching them how they're supposed to endure persecution and how to wait for his return properly. So he's still talking to his disciples. And now he's describing a scene of final judgment with everyone there. All nations, disciples, everybody's there. Someone in our uh, community actually had a dream about this recently. And I thought it important to read to you verbatim to give you inspiration for the week. So this is from our community text thread. It was Patrick, and he texts the community out of nowhere, and he said this. <laughs> he said, I had a vivid dream the other night. No one asked, by the way. It's like unprompted by anything, just all of a sudden. I had a dream the other night. Me, Patrick, Mike, and Josh were going to a pop-up flea market. Tab was going to come, but he backed out at the last minute. When we walked into the building, everything shifted, and all of a sudden, we were in a bright white room in a long line. We figured that there was a terrorist attack, and the building exploded, and we all died instantly. And we were in line to the afterlife. We joked that it was a good thing Tab didn't come with us. The line was long and slow going, but there were snacks and good food on the table beside the line, so it wasn't so bad. But the line stopped, and everyone was getting annoyed. Someone was holding up the line. When we looked to see what the problem was, we learned that it was Hannah holding up the line. She was trying to cut slices of banana bread instead of just taking a chunk. She was yelling at everyone not to rush her. Then we said, we didn't know Hannah was going to the flea market. She should have just rode with us. That's the end of the story. That was the end of the dream. So it's not exactly the way Jesus described it, but who knows? The point is, Everyone's mind has something in there when we think about this idea of judgment and some kind of end to everything, or at least this part of everything. And anyway, in Jesus' uh, likely more accurate depiction, I'd like to hope there's banana bread, but we'll see. He uses a familiar concept to illustrate something that's actually really heavy. Palestinian shepherds separated their sheep from their goats at night, and they would seal each away into unique enclosures. So it was imagery with which his disciples would have been really familiar. It was a simple but very clear picture of two different fates. A shepherd can effortlessly and expertly organize and corral sheep and goats. That's the idea. Then in verse 34, he goes on. Then the king, Jesus, will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and, come and go to visit you? Verse 40, the king will reply, Truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. So in the scene, the righteous, the sheep, as it were, they're kind of confused. If they have kept no stock of the good things that they've done. 
And this is one of the core features of this text. We think that Jesus is actually subverting other ancient teachings with a similar emphasis. For example, an ancient Egyptian funerary text from around 1550 BC writes, and I quote, I have given satisfaction to God by doing that in which he delights. I have given bread to the hungry, water to the thirsty, clothed the naked. The narrator in this ancient Egyptian funerary text who's dead, he celebrates his own works of righteousness. Note the similarities in the language. An ancient Hebrew commentary on the scriptures called the Midrash also depicts the dead celebrating their own acts of justice. So Jesus, the brilliant, subversive teacher, well-read, familiar with these other texts, he recalls these ideas inside and outside of Jewish thinking, and then he turns them on their heads with one stark difference. In Jesus' scene, the righteous aren't depicted as celebrating their own good works. They don't even realize they've done them. And you could argue it's because they're so humble. They're just so modest that they can't bear to admit that they've done all this good stuff. They, prepare, they prefer to operate in secrecy. But Jesus doesn't depict the righteous as humbly dismissive of the good stuff they've done. Like, oh, stop it. Stop it. It was nothing. That kind of thing. He depicts them as near oblivious to the connectedness between the way they've treated other people and their love for Jesus. And I doubt it's because Jesus intends to portray his followers as dense. Rather, Jesus' portrait of the righteous at judgment is of men and women who have made a lifestyle of loving others. To them, this is not unique and special behavior. This is just the way one lives. Jesus alluded to this at the beginning of his teaching career when in his introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, he promised, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Now, lots of people read that as an inferred command. Jesus is saying, blessed are the merciful, so you should get out there and be more merciful so that you can get blessed. But Jesus, we think, isn't actually commanding anything. He's pronouncing blessing. It's an announcement of good news. For those who have made a lifestyle of mercy without reaching for accolades or without reaching for recognition, I have good news for you. You will be shown the kingdom of God and you will be shown mercy. And then here at the conclusion of Jesus', Jesus teaching career, years later, he brings that same pronouncement of blessing to a final cataclysmic finale. Not only will the merciful experience the goodness of God's kingdom in the here and now, as he said in the Sermon on the Mount, they will then enter the everlasting kingdom of God at the renewal of all things. Now, given the specifics of the story that Jesus singles out certain groups of people, Bible scholars have debated exactly who Jesus intends to reference when he says, the least of these brothers and sisters of mine. If so much hinges on the way that we treat the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, who is that exactly? And scholars have come away with two main positions. Some argue that the least of these refers to and includes all humanity. It's just people in general, everyone, everywhere. But others say, well, wait, remember Matthew 12? Jesus claims specifically, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So others argue, well, the least of these brothers and sisters of mine refers to disciples of Jesus. They're Christians, basically. Now we'll talk about the practical implications of that debate before we're done in a few minutes. But either way, for now, those who fail to care for the least of these are separated from the others. And in verse 41, we read, then he will say to those on his left, the goats, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. 
Now that line, you who are cursed, is actually kind of hard to translate. More literally, the line about cursing has a kind of persistent quality to it, something like, you who have been being cursed. And Jesus is not describing some kind of predestined fate or some kind of predestined punishment, an inescapable fate set for the wicked before time. He is describing a persistent way of life that insisted on its own obstinate refusal to love others and to yield to the saving love of God. So it's almost like a better translation would be something like, you who insisted on being cursed. And on what grounds does Jesus make the charge? Same as the other group. Look at verse 42. I was hungry, you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. And then they will answer, Lord, when? When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? Now notice, in the same way that the righteous take no inventory of their good work, the wicked are oblivious to their evil. And they rebut, well, when did we see you, Jesus? We would have helped you. And that may well be true. But for Jesus, there is no love of God that exists apart from active love for other people, especially those deemed insignificant by society. So he tells them in verse 45, I will reply, or he will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. As it was in the parable of the bags of gold, it's negligence that marks the wicked as condemned. Not this awful thing that you did, but this good thing that you did not do. The subsequent writers of the New Testament emphasize the same thing. I think of James 4, where it's written, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Because of what they did not do, Jesus sends them away. And he says again in verse 46, they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So in the story, the fate of these inward-focused, lazy, callous, cruel people will be like the fate of the evil one himself, the devil. And the point is, as horrifying as it all sounds, is that evil will be destroyed. The old, the old norms of injustice and inhumanity will eventually be done away with. It is a punishment that is with everlasting consequences. And in that sense, it is an eternal punishment. In his commentary on the text, R.T. France points out, the devil's angels represent all the forces of spiritual evil. It is the ultimate elimination of all of Jesus' spiritual opposition, which is here envisaged. Now, the way that France summarizes the scene kind of clinically here, it highlights the terrible tension in this idea of judgment. Being destroyed forever in a fire is a horrifying idea, but the eternal elimination of all forces of evil is what we all long for at a soul level. This is why the overall story of Jesus does not end with this stark and sobering teaching that we're reading tonight. It actually concludes with what comes next. In the final three chapters of Matthew's biography of Jesus, Jesus himself will go to the cross and confront the horror of death and the grave to rescue an evil and broken humanity from the fire that consumes. So, before we end, we have to figure something out. If you've any experience at all with the whole Christian thing, you've likely heard the mantra, saved by grace, through faith, not by works. 
And yet here is a scene of final judgment in which no one so much as mentions faith at all. The only thing being evaluated is work, or more precisely, lack of it. Where's the grace and the faith? And the whole saved by grace through faith thing didn't come out of nowhere. It's from the New Testament. Look at this beautiful bit of writing from Paul in Ephesians 2. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgression. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in King Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Messiah Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork. But then, watch this, the very next part, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So, to make sense of this, let's do a very brief analogy in systematic theology. Let's say that God is embarking on a project. Let's say he's building a house. It's an easy one. Not an easy thing to do, but an easy analogy. Now, for this task, God would like to assemble a team of people who will work alongside him in building the house. That's the whole idea. He wants a team to do it. God looks out on a selection of people, but he finds that they are all unwell and thus incapable of manual labor. They're too sick to work. If God were to invite them onto his team, they would be incapable of joining it. They're sick, enfeebled, immobile, and they wouldn't even want to help. They're so sick. So for God to extend any sort of meaningful invitation that they can actually respond to, he will first have to heal the candidate. So he does that. He heals them. Now he can invite them and they can join if they decide to do so. What must they do to be invited? Nothing. The invitation is freely given for everyone, absolutely no qualifications whatsoever. So let's say some accept God's invitation, others decline of their own volition, but God gets a team nonetheless. Some people are going to help him now. Now that there is a house building team, what must that team do? Build the house. That's the whole point. So let's say that there's a certain individual who accepts the invitation, joins the team, but then sits there in place and does nothing to build the house. Nothing at all. If someone passes and asks them, hey, what are you doing here? And they just point to the construction site and say, oh, I'm with them. I'm building a house. Wouldn't the passerby be well within their rights to ask, how? How are you in any way connected with this? And wouldn't the team, and indeed God himself, be justified in asking, are you really on this team at all? You're just sitting there. You're not participating whatsoever in any meaningful sense. And when the work is complete and the wages are distributed, so to speak, what would God say to this person who did nothing? And if you don't like the idea of comparing discipleship to a job for which there are wages paid, both good and bad, take it up with Jesus. I stole it from him. The point is, no one does, or the point is, sorry, that one does nothing to be invited on the team. You don't earn it. It's nothing you did. It's a free invitation. One must only accept the invitation to join it, but then there is work to be done. That's the whole point. Salvation, as we think of it, is not a transaction. 
It is an ongoing process based on an active, dynamic relationship between master and apprentice, between father and children, and between friends. And embracing this, not as a state of mind or as a belief, but as a way of life, rescues us from the lifelessness of transactional American Christianity, wherein what matters most is a moment, a prayer, a transaction, no spiritual formation, no long, narrow road, no relationship, no give and take. And in this popular mode, we become unfaithful spouses who believe a wedding ceremony matters more than a lifetime of faithful commitment. No, for the apprentice of Jesus, there is work to be done. Work is not bad. In fact, the authors of the New Testament go for, as far as to say, you were created to do good works. So what is the work that we are called to do exactly? What kind of outworking of one's life indicates true discipleship? It is and has been throughout the entire ministry of Jesus, beginning with his manifesto on the hillside and concluding consistently here in the image of final judgment, to love God and to love other people. This summarizes both the entirety of Scripture and encapsulates the Sermon on the Mount. This is why we have built this little church around the idea of practices. It's not just to give a handful of people who will actually do them something with which to keep busy during the week. This is the stuff of relationship. It's the outworking of salvation. It's the metrics of judgment. You won't simply become a person who truly embodies the lifestyle of Jesus, loving God and loving others based on willpower. You have to practice. It takes prayer and scripture and discipline and community and on the list goes. This is why Jesus' entire manifesto on life in the kingdom of God is about relationships. Read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Every single thing in the Sermon on the Mount has to do with relationships, how we relate to God by how we relate to one another. And Jesus exemplifies them in three categories in the text we've read tonight. There's pragmatic concern for the basic needs of other people. There's hospitality, and there's showing up for hurting people. Pragmatic concern for those in basic need, hospitality, and showing up for hurting people. When we think of mission and charitable goodness, our minds tend to speed past common demonstrations of love out to the far reaches of incredible feats of activism, and we get discouraged. It leaves us depressed with the realization that most of us have founded no orphanages, nor clean water initiatives, nor led any civil rights movements, and we get discouraged, and then we become inert. Now, of course, the call to love others is very big and very broad, and it includes orphanages and clean water initiatives and all that. In fact, in 1965, the Vatican issued something called the Decree on the Apostolate of the Laity, which is an awesome name. I think we should steal it and use it for something here, even if we don't know what it means. And in it, Jesus' teaching in tonight's text is actually applied really well. They write this. Wherever there are people in need of food and drink, clothing, housing, medicine, employment, education, wherever men lack the facilities necessary for living a truly human life or are afflicted with serious distress or illness or suffer exile or imprisonment, there Christian charity should seek them out and find them, console them with great solicitude and help them with appropriate relief. Listen to this. This obligation is imposed above all upon every prosperous nation and person. Yes, the call to do justice is very big, but remember that each of Jesus' words are thoughtful and deliberate, and remember the generosity of his criteria in this text. He says, whatever you did for one of the least of these, 
Yes, Jesus will see and judge the the lifetime and lifestyle of his disciples, but he is willing to receive a single act of charitable kindness as worship and devotion unto himself. Pragmatic concern for those in basic need, hospitality, and showing up for hurting people. Bruner points out in his commentary on this passage, the only acts named are those within the reach of everyone and require no theological instruction, despite the 40-minute sermon tonight. (laughs) An early 20th century German theologian noted the generosity of Jesus' expectation in this text. He said, he, being generous, requires only what is within our power, or rather, even less than what is within our power, leaving us to exert our generosity in doing even more. Now, of course, the world will remember the lasting impact of our Mother Teresa's and our Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s. But we, in the simple unfolding of our stories, will also recall with equal gratitude the simple kindness of individuals in our lives. Often, they're the people close to us, When my dad died suddenly, one of my friends bought plane tickets for my family when we couldn't afford them so we could fly to the funeral. And when I got to the funeral, one of my oldest friends was there before me, having flown out himself, even though he didn't have any money, and without being asked at all. Sometimes they aren't old or close friends, but the community of God's people honoring the reality of the new family to which we all belong. When Abby and I had our first kid, people from our community that we hardly knew showed up to bring food. They volunteered their time. They came to help around the house. Sometimes it's complicated and complete situation, or or sometimes it's between us and complete strangers. I remember once when my son was still very small, he and I were in the library. Remember going to the library? And uh, and Beck, who's a toddler waddling around, he knocked over a big display of books uh, and these bystanders fell silent. The horror, this little kid knocked over books and they were staring and I was frustrated and stressed. And I took a deep breath and I knelt down and I asked him to help me clean up the spilled books and he did. And when we finished, I turned to see this older woman smiling at me and she just leaned over and she simply said, good job, dad. And her willingness to encourage a complete stranger became something that I will never forget. I'm telling that story years later. Who knows if she can remember it now? I venture a guess that she was simply that type of person. And perhaps Jesus will tell her a judgment. I was a stressed young father and you reassured me. Maybe to each of you he will say, I was frightened and lonely when I wandered through the doors of a new church on Sunday and you smiled and said hello. Or when I was hopeless, you prayed for me. Or when I asked for help, you drove to my house. Or perhaps the words of Jesus, the great wideness of his recognition will be even more surprising. And he will say things like, when I was conceived, you brought me to term. Or when I was a child, you fed me and cared for me. When I needed a friend, you laughed with me. When I had lost hope in other people, you were faithful. When I was discouraged, I saw you from afar, lifting your arms in worship. And notice the kind of lifestyle that becomes the focus of final judgment presupposes that you share your life with other people. Earlier I mentioned scholars are divided on whether or not the least of these brothers and sisters of mine applies to the whole world or specifically to just disciples of Jesus. Either one 
would be consistent with the thrust of the New Testament, which stresses justice inside and outside the church, but it also highlights a unique concern for care within the family of God. I think of Galatians 6, where we read, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. So there's category one, but especially to those who belong to the family of believers. So whichever interpretation is correct, the New Testament uniformly and emphatically teaches all disciples of Jesus to do both. So just cover your bases. And if you can't do that, or if rather you can't do that, if your life is not open to other people, meaning you can only become the kind of person to whom Jesus will say, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat, if you actually live in the messy imperfection of real community with other people, not just friends and get-togethers, but shared life and discipleship. Remember, in this scene, it's not the outward active evil of the wicked that's judged and condemned. It's their inactivity. They are judged for what they didn't do. The much easier road of the inward life without the often painful overlap of other people's messiness and vulnerability is the road that gets condemned in this story. You did not feed me. You did not invite me in. You did not take care of me. Having done both community and not community in my own life, believe me, I can tell you that it is often much easier to live without giving other imperfect people real access to your interior life and your spirituality and your discipleship. But if you choose the easier way, you can't follow Jesus. Following Jesus is always and only done in community with other people. Real discipleship demands accountability. It's often confrontational. It gets its hands dirty in the earth of real people. And in that awkward, stumbling, painful way of life, we stand to become people of love, a people of faithfulness, a people of humility and vulnerability. And that's why we're here at all. Because it takes practice. The spiritual disciplines aren't moral obligations. They're not things that we try to teach you guys to do so that you can check them off a list and feel better. This is how we become people capable of loving the least of these. It happens in morning after morning of quiet meditation and prayer that God will mold your heart so that you can love others. It happens in things like fasting or in studying the scriptures or just sharing life with other people. It takes a life together. It's not just an event on Sunday. And, and really, I mean, what's left of the event? As we've seen, that can come and go, and it will. But life together is something worth fighting for. What compels a person to take up a lifestyle of loving compassion for other people? The goodness of Jesus. I think of 1 John, the way the words seem to spill out on the page See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. We are not coerced by the threat of a punishment. We are compelled by the good master who has loved us so well and given us so much that we long to be where he is and go where he goes. And when we follow, he leads us into the life of love. So let us learn to follow him always and forever. Amen. Let's pray together before we worship again. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.